Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What was so appealing about Jesus? What was so appealing about Jesus that these four men would leave everything to follow him? In the first century, you have to understand, fishing was a thriving industry. Uh, there were many ports in several towns in the northwest shore, all based on fishing. Their names, uh, Bethsaida, which means the house of the fisher. Uh, Magdala, the fish tower, or Mazembo, the flying fish of the sky. Uh, I made that one up. But uh, on any given day, any given day, there would be hundreds of fishermen scattered along the Sea of Galilee. Because fish, not meat, was the staple in the Greco-Roman world. And so it was in high demand throughout the empire. And so Fishermen, then. It's not this lowly trade. You actually have to be a pretty shrewd and talented businessman to succeed in a very competitive industry. Jesus, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees hundreds of fishermen scattered along the horizon. But this doesn't capture his focus. He wasn't caught up in the sea of nameless faces. Uh, Mark says he saw Simon and Andrew. He saw John and his, and his brother, uh, James, you know, and he, he sees these four people. He sees their faces, but he, he also knows their names. It's personal. He's not interested in creating a nameless and faceless following. It's Simon, it's Andrew, it's James, it's John. Jesus, he sees and knows us by name, and he calls us by name. And when Jesus walks up to him, his calling is very straightforward. Follow me. Follow me. Simon, Andrew, James, and John all respond in the same way. They leave everything, everything, even their father in the boat, you know, mending the nets, leave the father with the work, I'm sure he loved that, to follow Jesus. They leave everything and follow him. And there's this cycle that occurs. Jesus sees, he calls, and they become disciples. He sees, he calls, and they become disciples. I think all of us, to some degree, we understand that we follow someone or something. I mean, if you have Twitter, you have a list of people you're following, or Instagram, or, or Facebook. You follow people, and whether it's a mentor or a friend that you admire, whether it's magazines or authors, um, we all follow someone. Why? Because we believe that whoever we're following will lead us somewhere. Uh, we believe that they'll help us become who we desire to be, or lead us to where we hope to go, or achieve the dreams that capture our hearts. But now, no matter who it is or what it is, we all follow something. And that something we follow requires something of us. Discipline or energy or time or humility, you name it. So we have to ask then, what's involved in following Jesus then? If he says, follow me, what's it going to cost us? Well, the calling of Jesus is drastic and it's costly. It's drastic and it's costly. These first followers, they walked away from everything, their livelihood, their families, to follow the Lord. And this is no small thing, because in the ancient culture, your family was everything, even more so than our culture today. The family was where you derived your sense of identity, and often it was your family where you inherited your vocation. 
And so to leave these two things is to leave your identity altogether. It's drastic. Jesus is saying your identity isn't going to be found in your family. It's not going to be found in your vocation. Follow me. In our culture, we're pretty used to moving away from family. That's just a part of life. That, that doesn't seem that drastic to us anymore. It might be hard. It might be difficult. But we got Skype and FaceTime. I mean, it's not that bad. But I think we more readily relate to leaving our careers. That's costly. You know, not Jesus saying, follow me before your career. You know, yet without pause, these men walk away from it all and follow him. The call of Jesus means that he becomes the center and everything else needs to readjust around him. And this means your habits need to change. What you do with your money or with your time or with your resources or with your relationships or the talents that you have, they all center around Jesus. And in calling these fishermen then, Jesus is asking them to leave everything that defined them. And he's asking for their ultimate allegiance. I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, Jesus is saying, knowing me, loving me, resembling me, serving me, must be the supreme passion of your life. Everything else comes second. That's a costly and drastic calling. But what I find fascinating is I know plenty of people who have left behind incredible things to follow Jesus, and they don't regret it. Good friend of mine, Keith, I met him while I was studying in seminary. Uh, he was about 50 when he was studying in seminary, which I don't know how old that makes him now, older than me. But uh, he was uh, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, really, I, this, this man was very successful, charming guy. When he was young, like in his early 20s, he thought he might be called to be a minister, but he wasn't sure, so he went down the business route, and, and he was very successful. And he left it all and decided to go to seminary. He was always one of the oldest in the class, which I loved about Keith. He was unashamed about that, and, and graduated seminary, and he leaves this Fortune 500 company as CEO to become a Methodist minister in a rural neighborhood. And if you ask Keith, and I asked him several times, he, he would say, I've lost nothing and gained everything. I've lost nothing and I've gained everything. I love that about Keith. Because, yes, there's a cost to following Jesus. We might have to let go of some things. We might have to leave some things behind. We might have to reprioritize our lives around. But whatever is left behind is insignificant compared to what we gain in following him. Jesus is so much greater than these things that they pale in comparison. The truth is, if we truly encounter him, we would drop everything in an instant just to be near him. We drop everything just to be near him. But why is Jesus this appealing? Well, for starters, Jesus takes the initiative, which in our culture would be deeply refreshing. No one takes the initiative anymore. We're always waiting for someone to invite us to do something. Jesus takes the initiative. He calls people to follow them. Uh, but you've got to understand, in the context, this is a profound break from the traditions of Judaism. Uh, pupils, they would choose their rabbi. They would choose their teacher. They would approach them and ask to follow them. And rabbis, they didn't choose pupils. And those who wished to learn sought them out and said, you know, I want to study with you. And the rabbi would bring the follower on, believing that they could become like them. And so it's a big deal that Jesus seeks out his disciples rather than waiting for them to seek him out. And these men, they weren't looking for a rabbi. They, they were looking for fish. You know, they, they weren't 
on a religious quest. You know, they were just doing their jobs. And the truth is, you don't seek Jesus out. He seeks you out. And even if you know that you're seeking him, you'll come to discover that it's only because he's already been seeking you. As St. John writes, uh, we love because he loved us first. This would be like the greatest scientist, you know, seeking you out and saying, uh, come be my scientific protege. Very appealing offer, thank you. Uh, this would be like the greatest cook coming to you and saying, come and, and study under me. This would be uh, like the, a great musician offering to develop your talent. And maybe that's what's so appealing about Jesus. Rather than seeking out yet another thing to follow, he seeks us out and invites us to follow him and become like him. Jesus, he comes to these first disciples and invited them into something so radically different than they had ever known. But there's still more to this uniquely different call of Jesus. His standards are not like the standards of the other rabbis. Ancient rabbis, they only worked with the best of the best, the very best students. But unlike those rabbis, these fishermen, they're not required uh, to have the best resume. They're not required to be head tall among the rest. Uh, they don't need to exhibit any knowledge of Torah or pass a qualifying examination in theology. What they need to learn and what they need to do uh, can be learned and done as they follow Jesus. And perhaps that's what's so appealing about Jesus. He isn't asking his new disciples to demonstrate some amazing skills or commit to an intense learning plan. He's inviting them to follow him, to be in relationship in him, to join him as they are and not some future version of themselves. And this is so different than the things we follow. What we follow is all about our efforts and rules and structures and things in this world. They're just so competitive, aren't they? They're so competitive. And only some people truly arrive, and we have to make great sacrifices no matter what field we're in if we want to be among the best in our field. But Christianity is completely unlike this. Jesus totally reverses the structures. It's not about what we have to do, but about what has been done for us. It's not about how well we can follow or how much love we can muster up or what we've accomplished or uh, how good we are. It's simply about Jesus and him inviting us to follow him. So Jesus, you know, this calling of Jesus, it's drastic, it's costly, it's uniquely different, but it's also powerful. It's powerful. What's really fascinating to me is Mark doesn't, present these disciples of having much of a choice in the matter. When Jesus calls and they just find themselves walking towards him. You know, like they're, they're on the way and they, they, they probably are wondering, like, what is happening? Because the initiative is entirely Christ's. And yes, they respond, but his calling is effectual. What I mean by that is that when he speaks, he creates. When God created the world, he said, let there be light and light shone in the dark. When Jesus says, follow me, disciples are birthed. He, his call creates a response within us and moves our hearts to respond to his love. It's because when he speaks, his words, they reverberate in our souls. They, they call out to our deepest yearnings and longings uh, for a sense of purpose, for a sense of meaning in this confusing world. He calls us to follow because he knows that uh, we yearn that something, whatever it is that we follow, will bring us to this goal of of finding peace and wholeness and purpose and meaning. And his invitation, it has a peculiar effect. We might not be able to explain it even. I remember when I first heard the calling to follow Jesus, I couldn't explain it, but I wanted to follow. 
It just does something within us. And yet, this calling, it requires a lot of trust, don't you think? It requires a lot of trust. Jesus, he doesn't provide a ton of details. You know, it, he, the fishermen, they don't know where he's going to lead or what it's going to entail, how long it's going to take. He doesn't give them a roadmap. He, he doesn't give them a destination. The invitation just requires trust. Trust that leaving everything behind will really be worth it. Trust that they'll be provided for along the way. Trust that although Jesus is unlike any rabbi they've seen, that he'll truly lead them towards God. Trust that if the path becomes hard, Jesus actually knows what he's doing. But again, this is different from the things we follow. You know, they call us to trust them, and they hold out an end destination, but it's always like a dangling carrot that we can never quite reach. And even if it is achievable, it only ever changes our external circumstances. But we hoped it would change more, didn't we? We hoped it would change more, but our outward realities rarely change our inward longings. I used to work as a graphic designer in, in a, a branding agency and in advertising firms. And when I was a junior designer, all I could think about was becoming my own boss, you know, becoming a creative director so that I could bark orders at other people. And I thought once I had arrived in this position, I was certain. I'll be more content, I'll be more satisfied. And eventually I became a creative director. And was I more satisfied, was I more content? No. Because once I arrived, I wanted the next thing, starting my own agency. And so I went with some guys and helped start a design agency. Was I more satisfied, was I more content? No. Then on to the next thing, and the next thing. You see, my job never changed my heart. A better title, or more autonomy, or more money. It could never give me the satisfaction and the contentment that I was searching for. It's no different than people who move to a new city thinking that a new place means a fresh start by default. Certainly, some things are going to change, but external realities will never change internal realities. The old saying, wherever you go, there you are, is very true. So listen to me on this, because it's important. The reason Jesus doesn't provide a destination is because when we start following him, we've already arrived. He is the destination. And we can spend so much time in our lives fretting about what's my calling, what should I do, where should I go, because we think these things will bring us that contentment and satisfaction. But the reality is when you see that your fundamental calling is simply to follow Christ, you've already arrived. The things you're, the things you're searching for are already available to you. And Jesus, he's the only person who can actually satisfy us, who can actually fill the cracks of our souls that are desperately searching for meaning or purpose or love. And no matter where following him may take us, no matter what it might involve, it will be worth it because he is the destination. And so this calling, it's costly, it's drastic, it's different, it's powerful, it requires trust. And that is a high calling for anybody. This is a lot to ask of somebody. And so it still begs the question, what was so compelling about Jesus that these original disciples would just pack up and leave everything to follow him? We don't get a peer into the internal monologue of the disciples. Lots of people have over the ages. Some people suggest that Jesus was just very beautiful, and so people followed him. Or that he was charming, uh, or that he had a reputation at this point, so people followed him, or it was the allure of his laser beam eyes, you know. Um, but seriously, if you're going to reorder your life around someone, there'd have to be something utterly compelling about them, wouldn't there? So what was it? 
What was it that these people would give up everything to follow this man, to accept this high calling upon their lives? And Mark, he unpacks this allure a little bit, but it's subtle. Look again at verse 17. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The call of Jesus comes with a promise, with the words, I will make you become. Jesus takes responsibility for our future transformation. The call of Jesus includes his commitment to us. Jesus' invitation, then, it, it comes with a promise, a guarantee that he is more committed to us than we are to him. And that's what's so appealing. Jesus' call comes with the promise that Jesus himself will do it. And he'll make us into something that we could never become on our own. This is like Stephen Hawking's, you know, coming up to you and saying, come follow me and I'll make you become the greatest genius. Or, you know, uh, Justin Bieber coming up to you and saying, come follow me and I'll make you the greatest teenage heartthrob the world has ever known. Or Roger coming and saying, come follow me and I'll bequeath upon you all my southern charm and my robust vocabulary. Uh, <laughs> studying under these people would be great, especially Roger, I know. But uh, they could never guarantee our transformation. They could never guarantee the promise that they had just made to us. They can't get inside of us and recalibrate our will or our minds, our souls or, or our hearts. And so how is Jesus then able to change us? How does that change occur? Uh, Julia and I, we, when we first moved to Vancouver, um, we lived in the a high rise on the 21st floor overlooking Emory Barnes Park. Uh, and it was a lovely condo and, and on blissful, you know, sunny days, we could see these families swarm to the parks. But on this one clear day, it was odd. There was just this one family there, the dad and his son, and the mom was sitting on the bench. And uh, we could see from the distance, you know, this is a pretty young child. And his, the dad and the kid were playing soccer. And so the dad would kick the ball to the child, and the child would touch the ball and then fall over. And the dad would run over, pick him up, and go back to his spot. And we thought, well, that's odd. And then the dad kicks the ball again. The child touches the ball, falls over. Dad runs over, picks the child up. And you're thinking, you're thinking like, this is a little cruel. Like, maybe the dad should kick a little softer. Uh, and, and, but this was the pattern. Dad kicks the ball. Child touches the ball, falls over. Very confusing. And even from the 21st floor, we could see, like, the dad was at his wit's end with his kid. Like, he'd be like, stay. You know, and what was going on? What was going on? Simple truth. We copy what we follow. He must have seen his first soccer game. You know how it goes. Soccer players, they're just failed soap opera actors. The smallest thing happens, and they drastically fall to the ground. Any fall, writhing pain, the flop, right? I love soccer, but this is true. This kid understood that soccer equals flopping. So when his dad kicked him the ball, he flopped. Why? Because he wanted to be a soccer player. You copy what you follow. And you'll, you've probably noticed this in your own life. If you spend a lot of time with a snarky coworker, you start to copy their mannerisms. If you spend all your time reading The Economist, you start to copy all the financial jargon. We copy what we follow. But is, is it just a matter of copying Jesus that transforms us? No. That would make Jesus no different than anything else we follow. While we're called to put effort into following Jesus, while Paul says things like imitate me, and while we should put every effort to become more Christ-like, something more is offered than just an example to copy and imitate. We don't just copy and change. Jesus himself can make us become fishers of men. Well, how? And this is where the prologue of Mark's gospel is helpful for us. Jesus can do this because he's the son of God. 
He's God in the flesh. If you encounter Jesus, you encounter the one who brought everything into existence by the power of his word. You meet the one who fashioned your soul, who knows your every thought and desire before you can even articulate them, who knows your inner workings and realities of your heart more accurately and with more clarity uh, than, than you even know. So how does Jesus transform us? By the power of his word. It's like Genesis. God speaks and things come into existence from nothing. When Jesus speaks to us, uh, we can become what we once were not. He can speak new life into us. He can speak purpose and meaning into us. He can bring life into places we feared were dead. He can bring reconciliation into relationships that we thought were lost or too far gone. And Jesus, he invites us to follow him, to become something more than ordinary, to become like him. To become like him. And it comes with the promise that he'll do it. He will make us become fishers of men. Back to Stephen Hawking. You know, he could invite us to study under him, but he couldn't guarantee our transition into becoming a genius. He could only work diligently to get us there, but he can't change your being. He can't change your DNA. He can't change your ability to learn. The only being capable of that is God. And it's Christ who shows us that God is with us, that he is walking among us, and that he has the actual power to make us become like him. Because he's paving the way to the cross, which will remove every obstacle and obstruction that stands between us and God. But you might be wondering, is this really worth it? You know, maybe you're here and you're, you're trying to figure out, like, do I want to follow this Jesus? And maybe you're torn, like, I still want to follow my own agenda or I still want to follow these philosophies that really interest me. And you might be holding out thinking that what you're currently following will someday pay off, will someday fulfill the hope that you'll be satisfied and content. One of my professors in seminary used to say to me, show me a better religion and I'll become its greatest disciple. Show me a better product that can offer what Jesus offers and more, and I'll become that product's greatest disciple. Hands down, there is nothing better, nothing with the same amount of promises available in the world to follow. So until you can show me something better than Jesus, I'm going to stick to following him. Here's the thing. If, if you don't find the calling of Jesus alluring, if you don't find it's something worthy of demanding your all, the truth of the matter is you haven't seen it clearly yet. And that's okay. I would say keep looking. Keep studying. Keep asking the question, is Jesus really who he said he is? Because if he is, it changes everything. And what you'll find is over time, you'll be a lot like the first disciples. Your feet will already have begun to follow him while your heart and your mind catch up. But if we're honest, for all of us in this room, whether we follow Jesus for a long time or just for a short time. It's a challenge, isn't it? It can be hard to follow Jesus. Maybe you've trusted him, but now you find that your feet, they've become lazy. Your heart starts to turn back to old patterns and ways of thinking. And you find it hard. But the call that Jesus has placed upon your life includes his promise that he will make you become what he has called you to be. It isn't on your shoulders to follow Jesus perfectly. It's simply on your shoulders to fall to your knees and cling to him as he leads you along the way. 
And so it's never too late to start over because God's mercies, they're renewed every single day, every single moment. And this is the God who knows you by name, who calls you by name, who commits himself to your transformation and care, and he's more committed to you than you can ever be to him. So take the guilt and the pressure off. It's okay if you're an imperfect disciple because that's precisely what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So you can breathe and you can relax and you can trust that Jesus truly is caring for you, that he truly is walking with you, that he truly is shaping and fashioning your soul more and more into his image. And he will show you how to participate in that journey along the way. Lastly, in the big picture of Mark's gospel, Mark is flushing out a picture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God involves salvation coming into the world, God paving a new exodus through his son. And so the calling of the first disciples is a picture of how God himself is creating a new people. In other words, they're going to play a part in helping others come into the kingdom of God. And yet these initial disciples, they have no idea what's in store for them. They have no idea that they've been caught up into the greatest movement the earth has ever seen. But all the same, they're God's new people set apart for the purpose of making Jesus known throughout the earth. We can never fully know where Jesus may lead us. But what we do know is where he leads us will be infinitely better than any place we could discover on our own. He leads us into God's kingdom. He leads us into the love of God. He leads us into the movement that is changing the cosmos. And for us, that means he will lead us into our own city and in different ways for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of him being made known. So this far in the Gospel of Mark, what does it mean then to align ourselves with the kingdom of God? We get three words from Christ. Repent, believe, follow. And where he leads us will always be better than any destination we could find on this earth because he is the destination. He is the reward. He is God himself offering us the unending love of God in his presence.